This is uh, Explain It for Trinity chapter 13 and uh, Old Testament again in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 28. Psalm, Psalm 32. Uh, epistle was Galatians 3 and the gospel is Luke chapter 10. In the, in the epistle, Galatians chapter 3, there is this um, um, promised one image and language. And it's referenced to the idea of the seed, the promised seed. Note there, I, I made it capital S. So this comes from Galatians chapter 3. It says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scriptures does not, scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So there were some, there, there were these promises that were spoken to Abraham, and if you recall them, um, they they talked about look up into the stars in the sky, and your descendants will be more numerous than those. Um, so there is this physicality uh, to the promises, but we know from the scriptures that these promises are pointing to the ultimate seed who is Christ. Yes, Abraham will have a, a son, and he will be the promised seed, and from Isaac will come Jacob and the patriarchs, and through that family line, all these promises uh, are spoken that one day the seed, the one promised in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. So there's this longing and there's this waiting, and uh, it's even referenced as seeing in the Old Testament about this promised one, this seed. So there's a lot of talk about promises in the Old Testament. So sometimes we think Old Testament is about laws and doing, but it's really saturated with the promises of God, always centering in the promise of Messiah. In John chapter 8, we see this. It says, your father Abraham, Jesus speaking, uh, says, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And then this amazing statement, it says, he saw it and was glad. They answer, well, you're not 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, you note that last statement there, I am. What does Jesus just, what did he just claim to be? He claimed to be the one who spoke from the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses goes over to the bush, and um, the angel of the Lord says to Moses that he's going to redeem the people of Israel, take them out of bondage. And, and Moses says, well, when they ask who's uh, sending me to you, uh, what should I say? And the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus, right, tells them, say, I am who I am. So Jesus just declared in front of the Jews that he was the one who spoke from the burning bush. Right there in front of them, they could see him. Well, Abraham saw this promise, and he rejoiced at it. Now, he didn't see it physical, physically, but he saw it through the eyes of a faith just like you you and I do. We don't we don't see physically Jesus, but we hold on to him and Jesus himself says, you know, blessed are the eyes that don't see and yet believe. But there's this waiting and longing and there is this seeing by faith in the Old Testament. So it's just like us waiting now and longing and seeing by faith uh, the person of Jesus. So this is referenced in um 
a number of places then in the New Testament. This idea of faith uh, is seeing, and faith receives then the promises. So you think of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, it was promised to him that he would not die until he saw the salvation promised uh, of Messiah. And so he, he holds this little baby in his his arms and uh, he, he sings out, my eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. And then he says, now let us thou thy servant depart in, in peace. Once you see Jesus, once you receive Jesus, all the promises, then you know you are ready to depart in, in peace. Uh, Jesus saying, John twenty, blessed are those who have not 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 yet seen and yet believe. Well, that's that's speaking of us. And then that whole chapter, Hebrews chapter eleven, that that refrain over and over and over again: by faith, you know, by faith Abraham, and by faith Moses and by faith the patriarchs. They're all seeing, receiving the promise of Jesus, um, the, the second person of that Trinity, the one speaking from the burning bush, taking on human flesh and uh, crushing the head of the serpent in his death and his resurrection. And so they receive this promise by faith. So really, the Old Testament is just filled with this language of promise and faith and receiving uh, the gifts of Jesus. Now, I say that because um, in this text, two things will be contrasted. One is the promise, what God you know, will do and has done. And he gave that to Abraham, and he gave that to Isaac, and he gave that to Jacob, and he gives it to us. And it's contrasted with this idea of the law and what you are to do. Now, these two aren't like you know, oh, you know, the, the promise is a good thing and the law is the bad thing. No, the Word of God is both promise and law. The Word of God is always good. Um, we fight back against the law, our flesh, and says, oh, look at, you know, look at what all these things God is, you know, commanding of us and asking of us. Um, and so we somewhat tend to put those two against each other, law and, and promise. But uh, they're really God's Word, both to us. And um, uh, it's all a matter of now, uh, where is our hope? In what do we trust? Do we cling to what God has done in Christ, or are we clinging to what we are doing? So I'd like to give you two ladders. Um, the first ladder is this idea, you see the arrow pointing upward, this idea of performance. What must I do? And this is really the default position of all of the world's religions and really our human nature. Uh, this idea of, well, you know, I, I must do something. I must ascend to God in some way. I must climb the and the rungs. And, and um, you know, this is this idea of works or merits and, you know, the thought being is that, you know, if I just do enough, but, the, you know, the, the daunting question is, who can ever do enough? If we take God's law uh, at its face value, we are to obey it perfectly. We are to perform perfectly. And yet the scriptures say there is no one righteous. No one can climb that ladder and ascend to God and bring his own merits or works before him. So, by the way, that's also a very weary way to do life, isn't it? I mean, it's exhausting trying to just do and do and do and perform and perform and perform. The second ladder is that of um, 
God descending, and it is about uh, receiving all of the gifts of Christ. So we sit at the bottom of the ladder, and this is what Christ has done. And Christ himself, then, is that ladder. So if you think of the story of the angels ascending and descending, uh, at, uh, and Jacob sees this in his dream, Jacob's ladder. And Jesus references it to Nathaniel. says, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the latter. Jesus is the one who has descended. He is the one who brings with him all of the gifts that only he can give. And then in faith, we, we receive them. So two very different ways to look at our relationship with God. One is performance. And by the way, anyone who is not a Christian is on this ladder. Um, always about performing, doing, compared to this one, which is God himself descending and giving to us all good gifts. And in faith, then, uh, the faith is a receptive word. We receive, then, the gifts of Jesus. Now, I say all that to introduce, again, the text from Galatians 3. What I mean is this, Paul says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So just we get our history right here. He's saying that the law, uh, the covenant, you think about it in that way, the people gathered around Mount Sinai, God has brought them out of bondage and brings them now into a relationship with him and with one another. So that took place 430 years later after the promise given to Abraham. So what came first? You know, the covenantal law given at Sinai or the promise given to Abraham. Verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, that all sets the stage for the gospel. And very interesting because this idea of ladders comes up. So here's a question. It's brought in by an expert in the law. And notice that it was meant to test Jesus. And he asks the question, he says, teacher, so what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so uh, he's asking a up the ladder question, right? What must I do? What, what works are required? Well, when you ask a works question to Jesus, he's going to give you a works answer. And a works answer is going to be his answer, not your answer. So you don't get to make up the rules about, you know, how many works are righteous. You have to uh, listen to what God himself says. And God himself is going to call us uh, to perfection. Uh, And the only one we're going to find out who is perfect is our brother, the Lord Jesus. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice how Jesus uh, is this master of of conversation and teaching. So he doesn't go into a whole, you know, monologue. He answers a question with a question. So the expert says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, so you tell me what is written in the law. So if you're an expert in the law, how do you read it? And then the man gives an answer and he uh, basically answers in a good Jewish way and it's, this is a great confession that is made every morning and evening by the Jewish people uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, this is it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you are to love your neighbor 
as yourself. To which Jesus says, you've answered correctly, so do this and you will live. So a works question gets a works answer. Do this and you will live, which immediately causes this man to uh, evaluate and say, okay, well, uh, if I'm honest, have I really loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, and mind? And have I really loved my neighbor as myself? And here is the here is the devious thing about our human nature. When we're when we are confronted with the law of God, and it reveals things that we don't like, what do we do? Well, we rationalize, don't we? And rationalize is nothing more than uh, telling ourselves rational lies. And we say such things as, oh, well, you know, that wasn't that bad. Or, you know, there are some exceptions here. And this is what the man does. Luke 10 continues. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, "Um, who's my neighbor? In other words, I'm going to get out of this one um, because uh, I'm going to make some distinctions about who I am to love and who I'm not called to love. So he asked a question, who is my neighbor? But it's the wrong question. And Jesus uh, is going to, in in a just a masterful way, reorientate uh, the whole uh, dialogue around not the who is my neighbor question, but rather what does it mean to be a neighbor? So when you ask who is my neighbor, it kind of gives you outs, doesn't it? I mean, well, you know, my neighbor can be those that are close to me and those that I have relationship with and those that I like. And it's easy to love those people, or maybe not so easy, but, you know, they're my family or my friends. But those who are really against me, my enemies, and those who maybe uh, slander me or have done something to me, those really couldn't be, uh, couldn't be my neighbor. So I, I can't necessarily be responsible for loving them. Jesus just changes the whole question around. He doesn't even deal with who is my neighbor. He go, goes right to it and says, what does it mean to be a neighbor? This is then the story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it says, you know, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So what do you do in Jerusalem? Well, you worship in Jerusalem. And you go there for the feasts and the festivals. And when it says you're going down from um, Jerusalem to Jericho, you really, literally are going down. You know, the ascending up to Jerusalem is seen in the Psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? And you go up to Jerusalem and then you travel the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho and it's filled with all these, you know, these, this treacherous territory. So this man is going down from Jerusalem and he falls into the hands of thieves and murderers and robbers and they beat him and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. Um, and then Two other men come by, spiritual men, uh, from serving in the temple, a priest and a Levite. And so they've done their service, and they are clean, right? You go up, and you offer the sacrifice, and you're cleansed, and you you come back. And um, you'd be unclean, right, if all of a sudden you touched touched a dead body. And so uh, they pass by on the other side. Um, and so there are sins of, uh, in, in catechism class, we learned it this way, sins of commission and sins of omission, right? So the sins of commission, committing, are the thieves and the murderers and the robbers. You know, they hurt and harm. The sins of omission are, well, it's within my power to help 
but I failed to do that. And Martin Luther does a wonderful job of that in his catechism when he says, you know, thou shalt not kill. What does this mean? Well, we should fear and love God that we may not hurt nor harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. So we sin in, in two ways. We, we commit sins, but we also, by not acting, we uh, commit sins of omission. Now there's a Samaritan who comes. And so a little history then about the Samaritans is that if you wanted to call someone a slanderous um, a name, um, you know, kind of the worst derogatory name if you were in Israel, you would call them a Samaritan. Uh, they are the mixture of the Syrians who came um, and um, intermarried with the northern tribes of Israel, and they were then called Samaritans. And you, you run across these Samaritan stories in the Gospels, Jesus sitting at the well, and a Samaritan woman comes. In fact, Jesus himself is equated with a Samaritan. So if you want to talk about a slur um, culturally, in John chapter 8, Jesus answers, uh, Jesus, the Jews are, are speaking to Jesus, and they say to him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? And so the Samaritan word was to be seen as, you know, these people cannot have association with uh, the pure Israelites. It's this one, the Samaritan who comes, and he stops. And he takes the man, and he puts him on a donkey, and he cares for him, and he takes him to the inn, and he makes sure the man is okay, and then he gives two silver coins and says, I, I have some other things I have to tend to, um, but I'll return, and if there's any extra cost, I will pay for it. Now, the inn here, we're going to refer to it as the church. So in Ephesians chapter 2, when you talk about the household of God or the house of God, it's equated uh, with the gathering, the, we call it the ecclesia. In Ephesians 2, it says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together, become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the scripture helps us interpret the parable, the story. The Samaritan then is, is Jesus. Um, and he takes us then to the inn, to the house, to uh, the place where the church gathers, where there is healing and where there is medicine and where there is rest and where the forgiveness of sins is, is given to us. And we are healed in that place. And then we leave that place and return out into our, our world. So Martin Luther called the church a hospital, a hospital for sinners. It's a place where sick people go. I mean, you hear the words of Jesus, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And the church, if we were to see ourselves as a hospital for sinners, that we come there looking for the medicine, the right medicine, and it's given to us in the gifts of Jesus, the word of God, the gospel, the, the sacraments, and we receive this medicine. We have are the ones who have been beaten by sin and death and the devil left for dead on the side of the road. 
And there the Good Samaritan comes and he uh, picks us up and he carries us and he dwells with us in that, that hospital for sinners and he tends, uh, tends for us as well. Now, so you read the story of the Good Samaritan and you find yourself uh, in a number of places in the story. So you can see yourself as the one beaten by sin, death, and the devil left for dead on the side of the road. That is true. And Jesus, the Good Samaritan, comes and, and brings you to the hospital and heals you. But you can also see yourself as, you know, the religious ones, the, the priest and the Levite, and saying, well, I don't want to get involved with, with that. Um, I, I'm, you know, I've climbed these ladders of uh, holiness, and I'm, I am clean, and I don't want to be unclean. So you can see yourself there as well. Um, and so the story really isn't about, you know, okay, now uh, go and keep the law. But rather, it is about recognizing that you haven't kept the law and that you need, you're sick and you need to be healed and to receive the gifts of Jesus. So Jesus masterfully then ends the story with these words. He says, so again, remember he's talking to an expert in the law whose mind is all set about ascending and doing. So he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So it's not like Jesus is giving him a pep talk at the end and saying, go back and try harder. What he is trying to reveal to this man is his, um, his trust in his own works and trying to reveal to him that, um, He's asking wrong questions about, well, who is my neighbor? And he is uh, not being honest about failing to be the neighbor. And to get him to think about, well, he's the one beaten on the side of the road. And Messiah has come to take him. And Messiah's works are the ones that heals him. And then when he is healed, this is the go and do likewise part. Once you are healed by the, the good Samaritan's gifts, and the, the inn, the church, then what? Well, then we leave the inn. And then when we're walking along the road and there are those who need help, then our hands are filled then with good works. So this is how Martin Luther describes it. Um, he says, well, faith is due to God alone. So here's the word receive, right? Faith receives divine works that God only can do. And these works of God we can receive on, alone through faith. So when we go to worship and receive, you know, the word of God and the sacraments, there, that's the divine works, the divine service of God. And only he can do that and only he can give it to us. And we who are sick are made well. Then it says, once you leave, once you leave the inn, then we should be busy for our neighbor's sake and direct our works toward them, that these works may serve them. My faith I must bring inwardly and upward to God, but my works I must do outwardly and downward to my neighbor. So this is not about, you know, again, Jesus saying, okay, pep talk, climb the ladder, climb the ladder, climb the ladder. No, it's about receiving all the gifts of Christ. And we, we receive them through faith and once we are healed and we have Christ abiding in us and the Spirit given to us, now, now we live in different ways. 
So, you know, our our faith is inward and upward to God, but our works are outward and downward to my neighbor. And uh, there's another saying attributed to Luther, which which went something like this: You know, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. <laughs>